Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's edition, we're looking at politics in Latin America, where there's been a distinct turn to the left and a collapse of the political center. And we're also looking at the revival of authoritarian and populist politics around the world. My guest this week is perfectly placed to talk about both topics. He is Moises Naib, a Venezuelan economist and journalist who's now based in Washington. Moises has had a very varied career before moving to the US. He was a government minister and director of the Central Bank in Venezuela. In the US, he made his mark in journalism as editor of Foreign Policy magazine for 14 years. And he's just produced an excellent book on authoritarianism around the world called The Revenge of Power. I caught up with him at the World Economic Forum in Davos last week, where Moises was chairing several sessions on Latin American politics. So why is Latin America and the wider world seeing a revival in populism? Colombia vota por el cambio con el candidato de izquierda Gustavo Petro a la cabeza. This weekend saw a significant presidential election in Colombia. After the first round, a radical left-wing candidate, Gustavo Petro, a former guerrilla fighter, is in the lead with just over 40% of the vote. He'll go into a second round against a populist right-wing candidate, Rodolfo Hernandez, later this month. On the campaign trail, Petro's been met with great excitement. Here he is, promising an end to inequality and the violence that's dogged the country. We can't continue with these inequalities, the lack of rights and liberties, with the permanent exclusion of the majority of our people. We can't continue in this eternal and infinite violence that seems to devour our entire society. The second round of the Colombian presidential election on June the 19th will be tight. But if Petro wins, he'll be in line with regional trends. In many countries, economic distress has spilled over into popular protests and even violence on the streets. This was a recent demonstration in Peru against rising fuel prices. For days, chaos in Peru. Roadblocks on fire as protesters throw rocks and sticks at police. The left currently holds power in five of the seven most populous South American countries. Venezuela, Chile, Peru, Argentina and Mexico where President Andrés Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO, has given new impetus to the populist left-wing style. This is the salto of political neoliberal, the regime corrupt. A victory for Petro in Colombia would continue what some call the pink tide. And if President Jair Bolsonaro, a right-wing populist, is beaten by Lula Inácio da Silva, his left-wing challenger in a presidential election in Brazil later this year, the left would be dominant across South America. So I started my conversation with Moises Naim by asking him how he accounts for the revival of the South American left. There is great disappointment with the performance of the economies and social 
uh, situation, the pandemic. Uh, Latin America has been uh, hard hit by the pandemic, one of the worst regions in the world. So disproportionate um, pain and suffering, collapsing health systems, collapsing political institutions, traditional political parties. So there is this malaise about the situation. And whenever you have that and the strong anti-political mood in the country, you have populist leaders that promise to get rid of all the nasty, horrible, exploitative leaders of the past and bring uh, a new beginning to the country and uh, take care of the people. And in Chile and Peru, for example, that was preceded by quite a lot of social turmoil and protests in the street and so on. Yes, throughout Latin America, you have people taking to the streets. But that, again, is a global trend because political parties are not providing the vehicles for expression. So the streets are on fire in a lot of countries because people are taking to the streets because they don't find any other uh, ways of uh, having um, the opportunity to get listened by those who have power. And within this context, I mean, how important is Colombia specifically? Quite important because it's a benchmark. It has been historically an ally of the United States. And now one of the leading contenders, Gustavo Petro, has been very explicit about his criticism of the United States, his mistrust of the United States. So here we can have a government that is also offering profound changes in the institutional setting of the country. So when you have that, you have one candidate running for office in a traditional way, another that is essentially running on the platform of regime change. Which brings us to, in a way, the, the subject that you've been writing about in your, in your recent book, which is how authoritarian governments come to power often through democratic means. How concerned should we about, I mean, I'm sure these left-wing governments are different, but that they are are not going to be just like a standard social democratic left-wing swing of the pendulum, but you'll get actually new Cubas or new Venezuelas. Is that possible? Well, not uh, using Cuba and Venezuela as examples. They are now bad brands. They are brands that no one wants to be associated with. You don't want to run saying that you promised to become Venezuela. To the contrary, many of these candidates, we're talking about the candidate in Colombia, Gustavo Petro, who was very close to Hugo Chavez and very close to the Venezuelan government, who has been distancing from that alliance because it's a bad brand. It's a brand that has failed. You could also argue that it's very hard to run on a platform that promises you to become Cuba. You can use Cuba as a nostalgic kind of uh, message in terms of socialism and humanism and anti-Americanism. But at the end of the day, what people want is performance. But mostly in a lot of Latin American countries, what people want is to get rid of those that who have been in charge because the outcomes have not been successful. Is Mexico perhaps more of a model? Because AMLO there is this, you know, democratically elected, very much to the left. You know, it's been sympathetic to Venezuela and Cuba, but is plowing his own foreign as a big, significant country. He is one of the most popular presidents in the world. He has a huge popular support. He has a daily television show where he just talks about everything and anything. And um, that has helped his popularity. In that, he imitates, you know, Hugo Chavez had a show like that. uh, And of course, several others are using that tactic and it pays. But inside the country, he is adopting policies that around the world have been tried and tested and have failed, yet he embraces them. Such um, as? 
Well, he's, for example, building with government money an oil refinery at a time in which all the oil refineries are rethinking their business as there is a movement towards decarbonizing economies. So that's one. Why would you want to build another refinery? Second, why are you paying for it? Why don't find uh, some private company that will do it for you and you tax that company if you want? So this is just one example, but he has plenty of other examples that are old, that have tried and tested. And I have called this uh, ideological necrophilia. You know, necrophilia, of course, we know is a perversion that some people suffer that is a complete love for cadavers. Well, there is a political version of that, which is a complete love for bad ideas, bad policy ideas tried and tested once and again in the same countries, in different countries, and they always fail, but they somehow come back. And yet, as you say, he is popular. He's very popular because he continues to offer two things. One is the notion that he was representing the noble people that has been exploited by a voracious, a horrible elite. And he's there to protect the interests of the noble people that has been mistreated. And second is to essentially say that any problems that the country has are just a legacy of the past, that he's trying to solve them, but you know he inherited a dramatically bad situation. So do you anticipate Mexico running into some trouble? Well, economically, yes, there is no doubt, you know, foreign investment and investment in general, private investment in Mexico is not healthy. And uh, there is all kinds of signs that the economy will need some repair and will not be in good shape. And what about your own country, Venezuela? I mean, it's a very tragic story. And yet a lot of these new Latin leftists seem at least quite sympathetic to the Maduro government, or at least opposed to American efforts to isolate it. Well, remember, there's always support for David against Goliath. And here David is Venezuela and Maduro, and Goliath is the United States and its sanctions and its attempt to dislodge David, that is Maduro from power. So mm-hmm. this is a very classical thing. But again, no one is promising or running on, you know, vote for me and I'll give you Venezuela. Much to the contrary, leaders are distancing from Maduro and his government. And then the story of Venezuela cannot be understood without understanding the very important role that Cuba plays in Venezuela. What Hugo Chavez developed with uh, Fidel Castro was beyond an alliance. It was a, a fusion and he, they were very explicit about that in trying to make it uh, one revolutionary country. And, you know, there is some nostalgia for the past and, uh, and their anti-Americanism continues to be th- there among certain uh, social groups. But most politics in these days in Latin America are not based on attitudes towards the United States. The centerpiece of all the debates is what's happening in the country and the dire social situation and denouncing those who have been in charge as responsible for the bad situation that most people live in on. And before we move to how this fits into your kind of global pattern that you're looking at, Brazil obviously also has a big election later this year. How do you see that panning out? It looked like Bolsonaro was really in trouble and that Lula was going to win. But now it's narrowing a bit, isn't it? There are two worrying things. One worrying thing, Bolsonaro keeps saying that he will leave only when God tells him to leave. So there is a great concern among uh, Brazil observers and Brazilians about the risk that questioning the elections and, uh, you know, repeating what we have seen in the United States with Donald Trump, 
there is that, and there is that is at the beginning, you know, it felt like for sure that Lula will win over Bolsonaro. Now is it a, is a toss-up. And Lula himself, I mean, remains a very controversial figure. I remember when Obama, he was a great mate of Obama's, and Obama embraced him and said, I love this guy. He was then sent to prison for corruption. Do you think a second Lula in this new context, what would he be like? Do you think he'd be like the old one? Well, from what he already said and from his statements, you can see that, you know, he's angry. He feels that he was unjustly jailed, that he was innocent. So he's in a very feisty mood. Yeah. So looking uh, more broadly at the themes you bring out in your book, I mean, you talk about the three Ps. One of them is the revival of populism. Uh, Latin America has always been kind of big on populism and you're seeing a big revival now. Yeah, except that we see the revival in combination with all the trends. So what we have seen in the past decade is uh, an erosion of democracy around the world. In 2010, uh, about 49% of the world's population lived in autocracy. Ten years after, it's at 70%. So we have seen a sharp drop of democracy. And all of the institutions that monitor democratic practices and democracy indexes and all that will tell you that democracy is in its worst shape in 30 years. It's doing really bad. And together with that, we have seen the ascent of leaders that I call the three P leaders, leaders that get to power and govern, riding the waves of populism, polarization, and post-truth. Combined together and adding all kinds of special circumstances for each country, but you end up using these three strategies together to obtain and retain power. And populism is one, but in this case, populism is often combined with the denunciations of the enemy or the, of, of the rivals, of, you know, polarization to the extreme in which you don't even accept the legitimacy of your rivals as political challengers. And that is a very nefarious kind of politics that then get, of course, amplified and energized and uh, enraged by social media and what we have come to call post-truth. Yeah, and this uh, post-truth, as you say, is kind of a global phenomenon. Is it very closely associated, do you think, with social media? Absolutely. Well, you know, we used to have propaganda. Governments trying to use all kinds of information, misinformation, disinformation, confusion, to try to get at their service of their cause and their same power. But it was governments. That was propaganda. Now propaganda includes that, but transcends it because now everybody's doing it. It's not just governments. You know, people with a Twitter account uh, are just uh, mm. also feeding the post-truth and fake news and um, the distortions and all that. So again, the three elements, the three conditions or global trends that I have identified are old, except that they are now with us, with new potency and uh, with an amplified capacity to define politics. Polarization has always existed, but again, here it has acquired a new potency. Polarization is like cholesterol. There's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. There is good polarization, which is democracy, which is different groups challenging and rivaling and competing until one wins an election. Well, we're no longer there. In many instances, polarization now is defined by identities and your affiliation and your firm commitment to your 
gender, your race, your religion, your region, not unlike the relationship that followers have with sports clubs. Politicians and political parties and political causes always want followers. Not anymore. What people want is fans that develop an emotional relationship with the leaders. Obviously, you've now lived for many years in the United States. Do you, and were you surprised and perhaps a little disturbed to see some of these political trends that you kind of left behind you in Latin America emerging in the Trump years? Absolutely. And I was very concerned when I started seeing Donald Trump behaving like Hugo Chavez, because I started saying, you know, I have seen this movie before, but it was in Spanish and it was in Venezuela. You couldn't imagine two more different people than Donald Trump and Hugo Chavez. They're completely different in background, in outlook, in circumstances, in everything, everything. Except that they use the three Ps, adroitly and in almost identical ways. And so, yes. So tell me, what are those scenes that you thought you saw Trump and you thought Chavez? Well, there are many. The way in which he developed fans and not followers, the ways in which he fed discord, in which he deepened the polarization, in which he did not tolerate and accept that rivals have a right to govern. And of course, very critically, the weakening of the checks and balances uh, that define a democracy. Both had a very clear pattern of disrespect for the institutions, the the rules, uh, the laws uh, that define a democracy. And of course, one is nominally a right-winger, the other is nominally a left-winger, but they have a lot in common. And that is why populism is not an ideology. Populism is just a tool that can be used by the left, the right, and the north, the south, rich countries, poor countries. It's just a toolkit. Mm. And I mean, I guess, you know, fitting Latin America into the global pattern, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and indeed Latin America, some of the democratization, a lot of it preceded the fall of the Berlin Wall in the 1980s, You felt like you were getting away a bit from this style of politics. You had a kind of cooler, more technocratic generation, people like Cardoso in Brazil and so on. Do you feel like now you're stepping back in time? Absolutely. That is a very apt description. That is exactly what's happening. And so all the gains that democracy has achieved are sliding back. But to finish, I mean, how far advanced are that process? It's a rather gloomy thought. Is is, is it inexorable now, do you think? No, not at all. And and I... Again, a lot of what happened and a lot of the reason why the decline of democracy was so invisible, because that dropped from 49 to 70 in terms of people living in democratic countries, happened in very stealthy ways. And uh, people did not realize it. And so, you know, you cannot solve a problem that you have not identified. You yourself have, you have written about these kinds of leaders. And now we have more and more people identifying this trend. And I am very hopeful that once uh, what is going on is better understood, the rivals, the domestic rivals to each of these uh, 3P leaders will have more space to occupy the political space that has been denied to them in the last decade. I mean, it's interesting, you know, the city you live in, Washington, Biden's great theme is democracy versus autocracy around the world. But when he talks about it, he talks mainly about Russia, about China, Has America taken its eye off the ball in Latin America and kind of missed what's happening? Not just in Latin America. You know, democracy lives in a continuum where you have countries like Switzerland, that is highly democratic, and North Korea. Most countries are in the middle, in imperfect democracy that has some elements of dysfunction and so on. 
And those are the countries that are going to be in play in the next uh, decade or so. That was Moises Naim, author of The Revenge of Power, ending this week's edition of the show. And that's it for this week. But I'll be back next week, so please join me again for another edition of the Rachman Review. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.